Last Sunday, in our study of Colossians, we learned four counterfeit spirituality that threatens our true freedom in the fullness of Christ. There we learn to detect and protect ourselves against the false faith of uh, legalism, ritualism, mysticism, and asceticism that jeopardize our freedom in Christ. Today, Apostle Paul tells us the more proactive side of our freedom in Christ. If last week's teaching was about the defensive side of faith, today's teaching is all about offensive side of faith. Defensive side of faith was based on Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. Since you died with Christ to elemental spiritual forces and the principles of the world. Offensive side of faith is based on Colossians 3.1. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Paul was using baptismal language here. You know, baptism symbolized the union of a believer with Christ. So when you go under the water, it symbolizes your death with Christ. When you come out of the water, it symbolizes Christ's resurrection with you and for you. By the way, I decided to use the, uh, uh, the language, the offensive side, because we are in the critical time of uh, college football season. I don't know how your teams are doing. Most Texas teams are not doing well, except the TCU. Do we have TCU? No? Oh, okay, okay. Frog, is that? Horn frog? Any? What is that? Whatever. Doesn't matter. But, you know, people say, the defense wins championship, but you still need offense, right? You need to at least score a uh, field goal. Otherwise, defense alone cannot win the you know, championship. With that, let's read our text today, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 11, responsively. Since then, you've been, say, uh, you've been raised with a Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Your turn. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry, because of this, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now, you must also rid yourself of all such a thing as this. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Since you have, been, since you have taken off your old self with your practices. And to put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of his creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. He is in, in all. Amen. Flowers fall, but the word of God remains forever. Let me tell you first of all where we are in the Colossians, because this is our seventh study, and it's good to remember the larger context. Whenever Apostle Paul 
wrote letters to the churches, he always talked about two things. First, he talked about theology or our beliefs. And then he teaches about ethics or behaviors. So in the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul talked about the relevant theological truth, such as a cosmic Christology that can really answer the, all the you know, charges of uh, false spirituality. And then starting chapter 3 that we just read, we'll, he will talk about ethics and behavior. So for the rest of our Colossian series, we'll learn about the Paul's ethics and the practical application of theology. And I want us to remember that Paul's ethics is different from other religious ethics. Christian ethic is a theological ethic and has an important, unique principle. That is this. Paul's or Christian New Testament ethic always move indicative to imperative, not imperative to indicative. What are you talking about? Indicative or declaration, you know, indicative sentence, that's a basically statement. Declaration is what God has done for us. Imperative, which is a command or demand, is what we do for God. Christians, we are not doing the good works or good deeds to get something from God. We already received the humongous favor of, from God called grace. So that's the difference between Christian ethic and other religious ethics. Other religious ethics say you need to do good to get some reward and blessings from your God, I mean whatever God. Christianity teaches that we do good because we are saved by God. We are saved by grace. We are doing good, not to get saved, but to reflect the grace of God. Amen? So, for us, ethics comes from theology. And good life always follows grace of God. Such as the story of a forgiven prodigal that uh, Lee, you know, uh, prayed. You remember the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 went out and squandered the you know, father's wealth? But when he returned and they received the full forgiveness and then, you know, you know, sonship back, that's when we believe that he started living a new life. Now, today's passage, Paul gives us three imperatives or commands for us to exercise the offensive side of our faith. The first one is that a see your union with the Christ and the sick things above. Look at the verse 1 and 4. Since then you have been raised with the Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with the Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Twice Paul calls us to set our hearts and our minds on things above. And right there we need a major clarification on this command. When Paul said, set our mind on things above, he's not talking about otherworldly eschatology or escapism from reality. You know, it's not like... Uh, the old Southern South, you know, N-word, a spiritual song. You know what N-word I'm talking about? That, you know, when the uh, olden days in deep American South, 
when slaves die. In their funeral, other slaves, they sang the funeral song that was all saints go marching in, or when the saints go marching in. Because in that horrible slavery, only way out of slavery was a death. We're not talking about this kind of otherworldly escapism here. Nor we are talking about some kind of neglecting or negating material life. Once again, that's a Greek dualism, which says the material is bad and spirit, spiritual is only good. You know, Christian spirituality is not an anti-material, but actually above material. You know what above material is? It includes the material blessings and the physical creation of God and use it for the common good and glory of God. Amen? So, Paul is not talking about, above, put, set your mind above things, things above. It's not being, a, you know, Christian spirituality is not anti-material, you know, or, you know, otherworldly. Instead, he's talking about exercising our faith with a hope and expectation. And here we must note that our resurrection, Paul described not a future tense, but a present reality. Paul said, you have been raised. You have been raised. It's a present perfect, you know, uh, tense. Resurrection effects already, resurrection effects Start here and now. It's like a good illustration will be a wedding announcement. You know, once the wedding day is announced and the guests are invited, what do you do? Do you passively wait for the day or start preparing for it? I need your prayer because I have five weddings to officiate in the next few months. And uh, I uh, noticed that my, uh, so I try my, I have a, uh, custom made a summer suit fits me well but uh, my winter suit is a different story so I tried and my waist, waistline is tight very tight so I gave up my beloved Korean bakery for breakfast why wedding might be in the future but the effects already begun so Scott McKnight, in his commentary, sums up this way. To seek the things above means to live life on earth under the resurrecting... Do we have that quote? To seek things above means to live a life on earth under the resurrecting King Jesus as a Lord of all creation with the implication that Caesar is not the, their true Lord. So Paul is telling us things above because you've been raised with Christ that means that right now you follow King Jesus not Caesar that's the life offensive side of a faith and then why does Paul say their life is hidden with Christ in God Paul said we are not only co-resurrected with Christ we are co-hidden we became co-mysterious with Christ you know the expression of a hidden was the language of apocalyptical literature. Apocalyptical literature is the uh, ancient spiritual writing that convey important truth in the dangerous time to the believers in a cryptic, cryptic or coded language, usually a lot of Old Testament symbolism. 
And the one basic assumption of an early Christian apocalyptic call and the revelatory literature is that the truth of things cannot easily be seen. The reality, you cannot easily sort it out. Because appearances are deceived. Human perception on its own power cannot pierce through the reality that the real reality that lies behind all the appearance. You know, we, we all know the evil in our world masquerade, masquerade as a good. You know, we know the addiction is not good, but addiction is actually slavery, but it disguises itself as a freedom. And to humanize, you know, actually God's victory on the cross looks like a defeat. We don't realize that that was, a, you know, the another poor Jewish guy was uh, hung up on the cross. We don't realize that is a victory of Almighty God over our sin and death. God rules the universe, but that reign is a veil. So, from where we stand, the force of death and destruction look overwhelming, even invincible. And the world, you know, our world is, you know, seems to be ruled by greed and fear and vengeance and raw pursuit of power. And our world is governed by these dictators. So truly understand God's world requires more than just our senses our five you know, physical senses. It demands seeing reality with the eyes of a faith, illuminated by God's revelation. So in New Testament, it means a glimpse into heaven. You know, while truth is veiled on earth, truth is not veiled in heaven. You know, truth is very clear in heaven. And by the way, what God revealed in heaven is the ultimate reality that will, that, that will take place on earth and is an earthly destiny. So hiddenness of a truth and the you know, right reality is a challenging. It's a constant challenge to us on earth, especially in politics. Do you notice that picking a right politics is very difficult? Because it usually takes time to find out what was the right political choice back then. Have you regretted some of your you know, uh, voting choices in the past? I have. I have. It's a hard to pick the right politics at the given time in history. But I want to tell you today, there's a one politic that is always right and we can count on that is a politic of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. The word for citizenship in Greek is a polythema, from which we have a politics. So, our politics is a God's kingdom. As a one Christian commentator says, the Caesar always remains Caesar's. They do some good, some bad, but we have a different king to follow and obey. We have a more than different king. Our king is a divine king who hid us, covered us in his blood, in his sacrifice. He's a reigning, and he will bring his throne to earth in glory someday. So everything we do 
on earth, especially in our church, as is, you know, in his body, must be the reflection and revelation of that reality. By the way, uh, when I talked to, uh, when I uh, emailed one of our mission partners, Sarah Stone, in, in Batumi, in the Republic of Georgia, you know, Sarah Stone said, uh, Colossians, the passage I just read, the chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, that is uh, her favorite passage in the Bible. That's the, her sort of a life passage, life promise, and the anchor Bible passage where she decided to become a missionary. And then that's how she's been serving all her adult life. Now, second imperative or command is now is a more is is a now is a more fully is a, a a battle. Now you can see the battle, the real fight, the real offense. And here Paul uses a war metaphor. So second command, Paul tells us to exercise our offensive side of faith is a slay the ugly sins of our earthly nature. Slay the ugly sins of our earthly nature. Look at the verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of this, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. You know, to call to, call to slay the ugly sexual sins was not simply a moralistic or ethical. You have to remember, this is a foremost, it's a relational. Because of Paul said, verse 7, you used to work in these ways in the life you once lived. So Paul was telling the Colossians to stop living as you were before. Start living as you are in Christ. Amen? Don't forget your overall and original identity in Christ. Don't fall back. Don't last back into earthly, worldly, carnal life again. How many of you know uh, uh, Kian Pil? How many of you know the comedian name of Kian Pil? Okay. Those of you who don't raise your hand, you have a cultural gap here. On, you, you know, I highly recommend the Kian Pil. Uh, for me, they are not just a comedian. They are creative uh, uh, social commentators and much better than SNL. Why you waste your time on SNL? Just watch, you know, Ken Peel in the uh, YouTube, you know. And now today I want to share with you one Ken Peel uh, story. How many of you seen this uh, auction house episode? All right. Then you understand what I'm talking about. Okay. Their satire on racism and the role of humanism can be sharper than this episode of Slave Auction House. It is a hilariously human and tragically true. Kian Peel played the captured black slaves who are about to be auctioned. At the beginning, they were upset about the whole injustice of slavery, let alone in the auction. So they say stuff like, I don't care what plantation I'm sent to. I'm going to stage a revolt against, you know, whatever. And I can stand this idea of a one human is owned by the another. And the other guy said, yes, let's give them help. Then once the auction began, they became self-conscious and slowly became a part of the whole system. At first round, some, someone else was bought, and they felt a little rejected. And the second round, a big 
slave was introduced and he was taken over Kienfield, who said, hey, that's no brainer. I would buy that guy. You know, how did they catch that giant? And then third round, a puny, skinny, weak black dude was auctioned with them, and they thought they were obviously better choice than this guy. So they thought, nice to meet you. I'll see you later. But they were not picked again. They were not picked. Now that upset them, and they began to question the intelligence of our buyers. Do you see what just happened? Do they know what they are looking for? And then at the fifth round, another very short, unlikely slave was chosen before them. And then there, he and Peel lost it. And he, they are directly speaking to the you know, people, the audience, that how did this happen? Do you guys have eyes? We are definitely better, stronger slaves than this guy. And they began to protest then nobody was willing to buy them. As the auction ended, Campbell even pleaded, hey y'all, I'm easy and I'm strong. My only weakness is a perfectionism. I have no single bone of violence in me. While I was laughing, I found this comedy is painfully prophetic because this is a picture of many Christians. We forget our original identity and the true battle of justice and peace for God's kingdom. What do we do? We also start playing the game of a corrupted world. That's what this you know, uh, episode is all about for me. Now let's look at the specific things of our earthly nature Paul called us to slay and kill. Verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. You have to recognize it here. You have to notice it here that Paul overwhelmingly highlighted one particular sin, that is sexual sin. Sexual immorality in Greek words is a porneia, from which we have the, you know, you know, pornography. And this is not the first time Paul said this. He did it this kind of a serious warning about sexual sins in other letters. For instance, Ephesians 5.3. But among you, there must not be even hint of a sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because they are improper for God's holy people. So why did Paul and other New Testament writers highlight the sexual sin above other sins? I found it very insightful. I actually, I'm grateful. The, uh, during this, my study of Colossians, I found the new New Testament, good new, young, new, up and coming uh, New Testament scholars. And uh, this guy named, uh, it's a Czech New Testament scholar, European, guy named uh, Peter Pocconi. He said this. It offers a very important insight into the theological, sociological structure of Paul's thinking. He said, the reason for New Testament's focus on sexual vices it's not prudishness, but the realization that husband-wife relationship is the first and foremost most profound human relationship in which faith has to be proved. You know, biblical sexual ethic is not about, you know, you know it's, not a, it's not generic. That's what it is. It's a relational. 
I want you to remember biblical ethics is all relational ethics. It's not do's and don'ts. It's not even religious. It's a more relational than anything else. Everything that God commanded is good for us because it's good for us. It strengthens our relationship with our loved ones. Amen? You know, husband and wife relationship is the most important relationship in Paul's ethic. You know why? I think uh, Peter forgot one thing. Because New Testament church is a house church. Imagine you going to house church this Friday, and then the hosting couple, they fought. How do you like that house church? You know, there is a kind of a silent, cold, you know, uh, uh, gesture. And, you know, you see it. Do you think you will digest well? No? Would you like to go back to that house church, that hosting? You know, every time Paul talks about relationship in, the, in his letters, you will see in three weeks from now, Paul always starts with a husband and wife relationship. Why? That's the foundation of a house church and foundation of a church and the foundation of the country. And the what affect husband and wife relationship more than infidelity or sexual sin of husband or wife, but back then particularly a man. So this Paul's warning about sexual sins is not kind of generic that, uh, oh, be sexually pure. Be, you know, we're not talking about being a prude here. Paul is actually telling their people that be countercultural. Don't be like those Roman you know, husbands who just abuse you know, their bodies for their own pleasure instead of using their body to serve their wives. In Roman world, it was a common that males, husband, men have a wife for procreational sex, and then other women, such as mistresses, slaves, and the religious prostitute, and sometimes boys for pleasure sex. So that's how, you know, so Rome, that's how, you know, men at the post times, they gratify themselves or met their flesh need, a need of their, 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 their sexual need. Roman sexual ethic was shallow, superficial. It was based on, you know, one's status and dominance. And by the way, Greco-Roman philosophers, they don't have a much social ethic. They don't have a profound social ethic like a Paul or New Testament writers. Historians actually say one of the major reasons that uh, many Roman aristocrats, especially military leaders, they became uh, Christians is uh, because of a uh, fidelity of uh, their wives and Christian wives. Roman aristocrats, in order to promote their political career, they have to participate in military campaign. And then when they go out to military campaign, you don't know how long it will take. It's uh, not like it today. You, you cannot fly back. You got injured, you come home? No. You have to be there until the is a war is over, battle is over. Take up many months or years. And then Roman women, just like a Roman men, they are known for promiscuity. So what do you do? What do they do? You know, they invented the things called the chastity belt. You know what chastity belt is? You don't know, ask your parents. You know, 
So they kind of, but they have a rumor that Christian wives, they don't do that. You don't have to worry about them. They are are faithful. They are good mothers. They are loving wives. And this is why, this is a, you know, this is a historical record that a Christian woman of a, you know, upper class Roman country, Roman, you know, society, they were faithful to their husbands. We are living in a hypersex, hypersexualized you know, culture and time. Seriously, pornography and temptations is our fingertips. You know, in the past, I'm talking about when I was your age, many of you, you know, actually you have to be very proactive to get a, you know, you know to have a pornography. You have to go to store to buy dirty magazine and then go somewhere and look at it. You know, today, just boom. Actually, you know, comes up in the, you know, just a one, 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 one screen click. It's instantaneous, instant. You know. And then, you know, our culture overly changed the sexual norm. It's a no longer virginity is a norm. Safe sex is a norm. Safe sex. As long as, you know, it's a safe and that you don't get the STD, it's okay. Or, you know, impregnate, it's okay. And then, meantime, virgins are mocked and dispersed as an ignorant, inexperienced, and some kind of religious prude rather than person of a virtue. I want to tell you once again, to be a virgin, you need to have a strong character. You cannot be a virgin. You cannot be a virgin with a strong character, okay? Be proud of being a virgin, amen? Where's no amen? <laughs> amen? Oh, my goodness. Is it amen to be a virgin? All right. Wherever your past was, I hope you are virgin starting today. And the Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, can give you the strength and the you know, purity. And it will bless your future spouse. I want to say, this is pornography. I didn't realize. I thought it was a man's problem. But, you know, more I read about these issues, women have a problem, too. I was so... Grateful, the testimony, the vulnerable testimony of a wife of one of the most successful pastors in America, Rick Warren's wife, you know, the founding pastor of a Saddleback Community Church, Kate. She said when she was young, she was molested, and during her adolescence and so forth, she developed an addiction to pornography. And then he, he came to her, you know, so their first year of their marriage, they have to go through a premarital counseling. They almost bankrupt their finance. And I'm so grateful for that, you know, honest confession. And then, you know, plead. So keep your sexual purity, or, you know, seriously. Even starting today, until you get married, I, I, I hope everyone... The you know singles be a you know virgin, amen. I mean it. 
And I hope that I'm not the only one who says that. I said to the, my daughters, you know what? Every Wednesday I pray for the singles. I pray for that. That God protects you from the temptation. Because you're going to regret it. I've seen enough in the you know, ministry. Also the married people. You know what? I think a virginity continues. Bible is very clear. Sex belongs to the you know, marriage. Nothing else. Protect your spouse. You know? Don't punish your spouse withdrawing the sex. You know? We call it, we have a term, conjugal duty. No, it's a biblical duty. If your husband and wife do not find the satisfaction with you, where else do they find it? It's your fault if you withdraw for a long time. I just want to say this. When Paul, Paul singled out and the, you know, several words about this, you know, sexual immorality, impurity, and lust, all this, once again, it is about relationship. Amen? Sexual ethic is about relationship. It's ultimately, it's about the church. Thank God we don't have that issue. But I hear from time to time, church has, you know, the scandal of infidelity. And I know several churches that went through that horror. It is a painful, painful. Thank God that for us is a young church, and we will never, you know, I pray that none of us be part of that. Let me move quickly to the third point. The third and the final imperative or command Paul is a shed old self before you suit up your new self. Speaking about new self, I'm going to talk about next week. But look at the verse 8. But now you must be also read yourself all such things as this. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and the filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. And have a prone new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So Paul now used a put to death to prof, you know, clothing, clothing metaphor. So he's using the language of a fashion here. So Paul tells us basically this. Now with Christ, you have a new clothes. Better clothes. Why you, you know, keep wearing the old dirty clothes of uh, all this kind of, uh, you, know, you know, rotten things? Immoralities and the greed and the, everything. You know, to illustrate this point, I sacrificed my, uh, my, my uh, fashion sense today. Do you notice something different about me? You guys don't, differ- you don't, you don't see? I couldn't change up because this is a, you know, well, I'm wearing, you know, uh, I'm wearing a pants that is uh, more than 10 years old. It's a Dockers. Very good brand. But lately I haven't heard the Dockers. You know, uh, it's a good brand. It's still good, out of, out of fashion. And uh, I take my fashion seriously. Because, you know, my mother is a very successful uh, clothing designer. Seriously, I'm from South America. I know how to dress. You know, I don't, I don't dress like that, but I know how sexy men dress. 
And I have a sexy, you know, silk shirt one time. So I know, I take a, you know, fashion seriously. I know girls are visual as much as guys, not as much, but, you know, as, you know, as guys. So I dress well, you know. I don't wear skinny jeans like uh, Hyun, but, you know, my fashion sense is uh, very up there, yeah? But today, I'm wearing uh, Kim Jong-un's pants. <laughs> Do you know Kim Jong-un's pants? Every time I see him in the you know, news, I die. What's wrong with that guy? I mean, did you see that? that, that, that it's like a woman's, you know, what is this? Anyway, is he bragging that I'm so rich that I can make a, I can make a wide pants as possible with a last, you know, I mean, long, the greatest amount of a fabric? Crazy, definitely crazy guy. But anyway, so I'm sacrificing my fashion for you today. Paul was saying this. If you have a much better clothing, why don't you wear that? Why do you keep wearing the old clothes? Why do you want to wear, keep wearing the old self? And the, what is the old self Paul is pointing out today? It has to do with another particular you know, kind of sin. So look at the verse 8. All such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and then verse 9, lie. You have to notice that all these six sins Paul you know, enlisted has to do with the tongue. First three is an attitude. Last three is a, has to do with the tongue. Why? Why, once again, Paul is talking about you know, sins with the tongue in attitude and then action? Because Paul is ultimately talking about those sins we committed with the tongues that harms the unity of a body of a Christ. Paul's biblical ethics, sexual ethics, language ethics, is a relational and ecclesial, church-oriented. Amen? And then Paul goes to this kind of, uh, you know, punch and punch. And he said, Verse 10, the put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of his creator. And then here, here, he's talking about in the image of a creator, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, or Scythian, and slave or free, but Christ is all, is in all. By the way, Scythian is that uh, those people live the north of the Black Sea. Uh, people who live the, today is like uh, Ukraine and uh, Georgia and the whole, you know, Armenia, all the, that whole that area. And the Scythians were, uh, they were kind of barbarians of barbarians back then. So, Rome, you know, the Greeks and Romans made fun of them. But Paul here said this, you know, taking off the old, old self and the wearing of new clothes, new self, is uh, applied to everybody. It's a promise to everybody because Christ is for all. And Christ in all. And then, so, you know, when you look at the uh, verse 11, seems like it is another great policy, you know, uh, declaration of, uh, you know, inclusiveness, universal inclusiveness in Christ, such as uh, Galatians, you know, 3, uh, 27, that all of you are baptized into Christ, have closed yourself with Christ, and there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave or free man and woman. You are all one in Christ. Do you guys remember, right? So they, some people think that it's a pulse repeating. 
I think there is a twist here. What Paul is saying is that there is no, when Paul talking about no Gentile, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, and all this group of people, Paul is saying that you cannot use your cultural, whatever your social, whatever your ethnic, racial, whatever your subculture, personal group as an excuse not to wear the new self that Christ provided. I'm talking about this. You cannot say, hey, I'm from East Coast. I'm from New York. So I speak bluntly. I don't do sweet talk like the Texans. When you speak unkind, blunt word, you cannot excuse your background like that because you're from whatever, New York. Or you cannot say, hey, I'm late because I'm a Latino. I grew up, you know. You cannot say that. Maybe, you know, Latinos in South America, they, they don't have a sense of a punctuality, but you live here. You represent Christ, especially. Keep the promise. Keep the appointment. Don't say hasta mañana anymore. I'm emotional because I'm Korean. Koreans, uh, Asian, you know, Irish. We are very melancholic. We are very emotional. Put it away. I can stand that kind of lame excuse. That's what Paul is talking about. You cannot use your whatever cultural, racial background as an excuse not to wear the new self that Christ died and that they remade and provide for us. Christ wants us to wear him. Amen? Christ wants us to wear him. Our world needs to see Christ. How are they going to see Christ? Unless we obey Christ and unless we, we wear him, how in the our VIPs and our family members will see love of Christ? We read a Bible to see God. Non-Christians read our life to see God. We see God through Christ. Non-Christians see Christ, you know, God through us. Let us wear the Christ. I pray for us to become a church of Christ. That we all wear the Christ. And we all challenge each other, confess each other that I failed to wear Christ this way and help me, pray for me. I know many of your prayer requests are really, really encouraged. Some of them are really honest, you know. I seriously, you know, one brother, you know, asked me, Pastor Paul, should I share my temptation of lust with my, you know, house church? I love that prayer request. That's honest and vulnerable. Let's keep wearing, trying to wear Christ. Let's pray.